Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther. And today I have my good friend, Jonathan Trexel. For those of you that don't know Dr. Jonathan Trexel, he currently teaches in the Defense and Strategic Studies Program at Missouri State University, which is a, it's an excellent program. I have to recommend it highly. It's one of the best in the country. You might not think Missouri State when you think the best strategic thinking, but it is where it happens. So with that, uh, Jonathan is retired intel officer, spent many years working strategic nuclear issues after he retired. And then now he's taken all that, that experience and providing it to graduate students at Missouri State. And his specialty is deterrence theory. Perhaps one of the most exciting subjects we could talk about on this show, as theory always is. So with that introduction, Jonathan, you uh, and I also, Jonathan, for those of you that watch the show on on YouTube, Jonathan is one of the best interpretive dancers for deterrence theory out there. So I'm, I promise you it's a it's an excellent interpretive dance of deterrence. So welcome to the show, Jonathan. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I'll have to go look and see what I can find on that on that dance part. But yeah, <laughs> that. yeah, we've we've known each other a long, long time, Adam. I appreciate the uh, the invite. Yeah. So, you know, you and I have talked deterrence theory. We've talked, you know, how do we approach adversaries? I mean, you spent, you know, much of your intel career, you spent looking at the Ruskies. And so now we're looking at both the Russians and the Chinese and thinking about how do we deter, you know, these two adversaries. So, so let me open up our discussion. One of the big topics uh, that people are talking about now that is this, this notion that, well, the world is somehow fundamentally different because we've got the Russians and the Chinese. When it was just the Russians, it was easy. But now that it's the Chinese, it's just so much harder. Do you buy into this notion that a tripolar system with three great pow- nuclear great powers is a lot more complex, or do you see that differently? Um, I suppose I'm probably somewhere in the middle. Um, when, uh, when we look back in old literature, it is interesting when it comes to arms control, how we were dealing with strategy with the Soviets, we... Uh, we purposely built this world of a bipolar world and we based stability on this bipolar world. And all these notions were between the United States and the Soviet Union. Even though China was there with some small nuclear forces, how we thought about stability, how we thought about missile defenses, how we thought about nuclear forces um, uh, and strategy and this balance of terror, all of these things, China was dealt 
uh, very, very differently than uh, the Soviet Union was uh, for, for some very interesting reasons. But when you fast forward today, um, now we're, we're sort of coming to grips just with the fact that we have another nuclear actor uh, that has uh, aspirations for a large nuclear force and a triad. I think that's problematic. Uh, that's dangerous. Uh, it creates, I think, a little bit more uncertainty. It creates uh, perhaps uh, a greater unpredictability and some instability that maybe wasn't there. Uh, but the general ideas of of trying to influence their behavior and and bring some sense of stability uh, to to uh, the world when it comes to these great threats, I don't think that part has changed. Uh, it's different threats. There are greater threats, uh, greater numbers of nuclear weapons, uh, perhaps with different actors. But some of the basic ideas on on how we deter um, the importance of defending our allies, those things, I think, are are the same. Uh, perhaps how we do that, how we posture some of the forces that we might need need to be different. Uh, but in, but so I, I sort of find myself landing a bit in the middle uh, I do. I do think there are some uncertainties over where things will be in the future, uh, but but certainly a lot of the things that have been very successful for the United States in the past should be brought to bear. We just need to look at perhaps new forces, greater forces, maybe greater numbers. Yeah. So what what you just said there at the very end is the antithesis of what many people, many sort of the disarmament crowd, it's sort of you know, not the direction that the administration wants to go, but the reality, this is sort of, you know, my take on it is it's not fundamentally different. Instead of one bad guy, you have two and you adjust accordingly. So this idea that we can use all of these other instruments, diplomacy, information, you know, conventional forces, economic power, but we don't need to do anything to our nuclear forces. It it belies a sense of just, uh, I don't know really what to say, because nuclear weapons are the only two military tool that have been given, you know, have been imprinted with sort of moral agency. And they've been, they're inherently bad. They, you know, they're given all these moral characteristics that inanimate objects, you know, whether, you know, what, whether it's a tank or an F-35, they don't become moral actors, but nuclear weapons are given that. And, and for those who see it that way, there's no way to pull them apart from this almost quasi-religious position, which to me is what makes the discussion about you know, a, uh, you know, a peer China and a peer, you know, nuclear peer Russia and a nuclear peer China. The difficult one is that there's a simple solution, but it's a simple solution if you're sort of a pragmatist and and you don't have this moral view of nukes. Right. And there's a, there's a lot there that you just, that you just pulled in. <laughs> uh, obviously we have a, uh, a long history when we look back over the the past decades of nuclear deterrence as our as our policy option of choice um it represents a principally a realist point of view uh disarmament uh is something that lies in the uh, realm of idealism um uh 
and sometimes some of the some of the ideas or the language of idealism uh, gets pulled into nuclear strategy, at least in terms of aspirations. Uh, but uh, but in practical matters, we we tend to look at our nuclear forces. And again, when we when we think about uh, why, just this basic question of why do we choose uh, nuclear deterrence? Uh, we have other options at our disposal, right? One is uh, we, we looked at this in the 40s of defenses. Can we just simply defend the nation and we don't need nuclear weapons? We tried then. SDI was another attempt at that. And we don't have a technical solution. Uh, conventional forces, World War One and World War II, were about using conventional forces to deter. Uh, that did not result well. Uh, we can look at disarmament, but we don't have conditions nor trust to be able to go down that path. Uh, you can look at future uh, sort of preventive war. You can look at defeat in conflict. And these are different kinds of options at our disposal. But the only one that we really have for, for practical purposes and the one that's been successful uh, for the past seven uh, decades or so is nuclear deterrence. And so uh, for, for very practical reasons and historic value, we really need to come back to understanding that this is the policy choice that we must pursue and we must pursue it uh, with great vigor uh, and and be able to shore it up wherever there might be weaknesses. So it is the policy choice that we have in front of us. We have to embrace that and strengthen it where it might need be when we look into the future with future threats. Yeah, and, and one of the things I find sort of interesting about this discussion, uh, because there, you know, the implications of growing the nuclear arsenal, because that's really what, you know, there's a lot of discussion about. Are we going to have to grow the the United States nuclear arsenal to meet the challenges of a China that will have an equivalent number of operationally deployed strategic nuclear weapons, Russia with a similar number, and then both Russia and China with many, many more uh you know, lower yield theater range, you know, tactical, uh, non-strategic, whatever, whatever term you prefer, they're going to have a lot more of those. And so how do we still maintain deterrence? And so for those that have, have taken off growing the, the arsenal, they said, Hey, that's a non-starter. The challenge that I find is, is that for, for the, for the Chinese in particular, they want to grow their nuclear arsenal, not inherently to deter a, a strategic nuclear strike from the United States, because I don't think either the Russians or the Chinese think that that's something we're all that interested in. But they do want to deter U.S. conventional capabilities because they recognize the Russians fear American air power in Europe. That's their biggest fear. And the Chinese fear American naval power in the Pacific. And so. You know, my view is that they grow their nuclear forces in order to deter our conventional capabilities. And so when we offer a solution of, well, we'll build better conventional capabilities to deter their nukes, we're sort of playing into the hand that has created the growth in our adversaries' nuclear capabilities to begin with. We're confirming their fears. Uh, now, I could be wrong. So you tell me if I'm wrong. No, I, I don't. I don't know the right answer to that. I'll just I'll just add a little bit of information to it. I guess my view, um, when when we're looking at uh, these kinds of threats, I I think they 
you know, look, the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, uh, they see the world uh, from a, a power-based system. Sure, uh, we absolutely. We articulate this, this system that's out there called a rules-based system. But in the real world, the world is both rules-based and power-based, and our adversaries see the, see the world through the lens of power. And so nuclear weapons to them is an instrument of power that can be used not just to deter but to coerce. Um, and and so we are facing adversaries, and we see this with Russia in uh, the war with Ukraine and in Europe. And uh, we are beginning to see it even with the language uh, from Chinese, uh, from the Chinese, when it comes to nuclear coercion, threats to Japan, etc. And uh, and we have to be able to um, speak the language of power. This is the language they understand. This is the language they respect. It's an unfortunate uh, part of what the world is, the world system. Uh, and, and so to, to try to um, uh, address this, this problem of nuclear coercion with non-nuclear instruments, um, it's, um, that's very, very problematic. And so uh, to me, when we're thinking about uh, the Pacific in particular, but, but Europe as well, when you're looking at, uh, at the problems of escalation and this chess game of looking ahead several moves in escalation, one of the things you brought it up was uh, low yields or non-strategic forces in the Pacific, uh, something that we withdrew all of these things uh, some years ago, and we simply don't have that capability. And, and so it's one thing in my mind to, um, to modernize our triad uh, and possibly grow the triad because of the increasing numbers of the, the Chinese threat. But something that we also are going to have to face uh, for managing escalation across the board, across this continuum and the, this range of potential violence to try to deter all of that is something that we're missing is a good, strong, compelling, non-strategic uh, nuclear force present in, presence in the Pacific. And and we can look at uh, different uh, different ways uh, that 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 could what, what that could look like uh, the the slicka men uh, uh, and and there are other other ways we could do that but uh, all of those things to me are things that are going to be uh, required if we want to try to um, address the threat across the board so to deter across the range because if you if you give uh, or give in and show weakness at one level, it's something that uh, our adversaries can take advantage of, and then you run the risks of escalation that nobody wants. And so we really need to have the forces, the instruments of power, in this case, uh, military instruments across the board. You know, I, I may be wrong, but I think Kissinger was the one who said you cannot have a diplomatic solution until you have a military solution. And that is we have to have the military capabilities the will and a policy that says we are willing to use these instruments under these circumstances before you try to have a diplomatic solution on some of these things. And I'm not sure we're at the point where we have that, that military solution yet. Yeah, you're, you're, I think you're absolutely right on that. And, and going along with Kissinger, uh, another great thinker, it's probably one of my absolute favorite uh, quotes is, is when Don Rumsfeld said, Weakness is provocative. And for power-based systems, weakness is absolutely provocative. And this idea that the United States and Americans, because we're pretty fat, dumb, and happy. You know, our problem isn't starvation or invasion. Our problem is obesity. 
and, you know, fentanyl addictions and these kinds of things. So we're, we're in a pretty good place. So therefore for us, the idea that, you know, we want to go out and conquer the world. It's like, what are you talking about? We want to watch the NFL on Sunday, college football on Saturday. You know, we want to watch Netflix in the evenings and, you know, we, we have a pretty good standard of living. So there's not that much appeal to go out and do the things that our adversaries fear because we're sitting in a very different seat than they are. And I think right. it's often hard for us to understand where they sit. Right. And, I, and I'll add to that. I mean, there are other uh, things as well. I uh, we're, we're behind when it comes to uh, uh, modernization of our triad. Uh, we do not have uh, adequate non-strategic nuclear forces. Our conventional forces have atrophied. We certainly don't have enough conventional forces in the Pacific theater. Um, and then when you look at other areas of weakness, for example, uh, that people write about would be uh, the Afghanistan withdrawal, things like this, where even our allies uh, point to problems within the United States in terms of its decision making and its ability to um, uh, to to be resilient uh, over time. These are things that I, when you're looking at a China with a very strong economy. Um, and some some deepness, and then and certainly we can argue about the the depth of its economy. But nevertheless, it it has uh, an economic factor uh, that is a bit different than than the Russian threat. Uh, but these are these are uh, these are strategic problems. This idea of weakness that you talked about, and and uh, and then the question is is uh, just as you mentioned about Rumsfeld. How do our uh, opponents uh, view those weaknesses and how might that feed into decision making for uh, questions of going to war, escalation, those kinds of things? And those are things that we ought not to be taking uh, risks on. Those are things that we should be uh, eliminating that kind of risk. Well, this has been a great conversation thus far, but we are going to have to take a quick break. I'm Adam Lowther. I'm with Jonathan Trexel, and you're listening to NucleCast, and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrent Summit. Come join NucleCast at the summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the NucleCast website at anwadeter.org slash NucleCast. Okay, we're back with Jonathan Trexel, and we've been talking about deterrence, the strategy, you know, this idea of tripolarity and whether we need uh, additional nuclear forces. I I'll tell you my great fear. My great fear is one that relates to arms control. So as I look at the Russian position, I think the Russians can keep moving down in operationally deploys strategic nuclear weapons. 
and because they they don't have a particular fear that we're going to launch ICBMs across the poles. Uh, I don't think they fear that. What they fear is a, an invasion from NATO. And so for them, they need, you know, tactical nuclear weapons, lower yields for defense of Russian territory. And they don't need, so if they could negotiate away the strategic nuclear forces, but of course, as they have thus far, leave out uh, these these battlefield, non-strategic, whatever you want to call them, weapons, they can still use nukes to defend themselves. And then when it comes to China, they also don't need strategic nuclear weapons to deter the Chinese. They, they need these short and medium range ballistic missiles, the, you know, the cruise missiles, all of these can, so they, they can, you know, negotiate away their strategic forces and it doesn't harm their defense. The Chinese in, are much the same. If they needed to strike Moscow, they could do so. And their primary threat is us and we'll be coming across the Pacific so therefore, they could largely defend the Chinese mainland uh, without, you know, strategic nuclear weapons. And so for them, I, you know, my concern is that we'll nego keep negotiating down. And the only one that truly needs um, both strategic and shorter range tactical is us because of how we have to fight on you know, a European a war and a, a Pacific war, but the Russians and the Chinese don't have the same challenges. And I think that that would be a, a pretty significant mistake on our part to do so. But that's what I see people advocating even to this day. Well, um, I still think the, you know, the, the Russians, the Chinese and the North Koreans as well, uh, there are perp there are reasons why that they are modernizing for the Chinese growing uh, their ICBM capability. Um, I think they they do see some value in that, although it's a, it is an un an uncertain future. But even in the uh, the basic idea of being able to threaten the U.S. homeland, um, uh, that has uh, at a strategic level that has its own value. Sure, um, they play on uh, uh, the United States and open society. Uh, the fear, uh, the greater fear for the United States is not uh, fear of our forces being attacked, but our cities being attacked and, and our point. population and kind of awareness. The other reason is uh, they might want these forces uh, to try to decouple the United States from our allies, both in the Pacific and then in, 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 uh, in Europe, where if you can threaten the United States sufficiently, perhaps the United States uh, will uh, fold on its extended deterrence security guarantees, leave allies uh, to defend for themselves, um, something that would be a much more manageable problem for both uh, both China and uh, Russia and North Korea as well, uh, where uh, uh, the allies are right in their uh, right in their region. And, and as you say, the forces that they have to engage in regional conflict is very, very great. And so I I do think they have those uh, some reasons and, and maybe some others why they would want those nuclear forces. Um, and so the, the problem set for us, uh, like you said, is different. Uh, we not only have multiple adversaries, uh, we have different regions. Uh, we need to be able to fight uh, regionally and uh, strategically if, if need be, at least be able to threaten that so as to deter. Uh, but we have to have the, the capabilities. And this is, again, somewhere where I see, in my view, 
weakness uh, on the part of the United States when it comes to non-strategic uh, nuclear forces. In Europe, uh, the, the Russians have uh, perhaps as many as 2,000. Uh, we and, the, and NATO are measured in hundreds, and certainly we're outnumbered by uh, the Chinese in the Pacific, uh, where we don't have any uh, non-strategic nuclear forces any longer. We used to have hundreds on the Korean Peninsula. That was, uh, that was sort of uh, uh, withdrawn with the hopes that uh, we, we would uh, coax. Uh, again, it's a theoretic uh, uh, proposition of reciprocity, of doing something, and you hope that your opponent will reciprocate. In a case, the North Koreans did not do that. Uh, historically, when we, we uh, went down the path of the ABM Treaty, we had hopes that the Russians would not only limit their uh, missile defenses, but also limit the growth and the expansion, the modernization of their strategic nuclear forces. We did that. They did not. And so, uh, as you say, arms control can be uh, one of those things where sometimes it can reduce the threat, uh, but sometimes it can be that dual-edged sword where you have hopes that your opponents will take certain actions. But we have history where there are times where they don't do that. And uh, the risks are not to our, our opponents. The risks are to the United States and our allies. So we have to be very careful, in my view, when we're approaching those things, especially out into this future where there's a lot of uncertainty over the capabilities and the intentions of our opponents and our opponents when they might be uh, very, very cooperative. Uh, that, to me, is, is something where uh, I, I tend to be more in the Herman Kahn camp of, uh, of seeing where deterrence can fail. And the solution to that is to, is to seek a position of advantage with a lot of different capabilities, a lot of different options at your disposal. Speak the language of power that our uh, opponents speak, uh, but speak it from a position of advantage and remove that uncertainty and, and remove as much risk to the United States and our allies as possible. Well said. Well said. Uh, you made some great points. So, I, you know, I, I thought your discussion of the fear that strategic weapons bring to the homeland and the effort to decouple, that's, that's a well said point. What, so one of the things that, that I've, I've thought here lately is we've seen the Russians increasingly, you know, there was so uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky was here. There was statements out of Russia that there, there now can be no, there can be no peace. And apparently they're moving their Satan two missiles to readiness. And I, you know, there's some other stuff that, that has been in the press in the last 24 hours about, the, the Russians preparing to use nukes. And I, I wonder if all of this would be happening if we had over the last 20 years taken a position similar to uh, President Reagan when in, you know, the INF negotiations. So one thing I did, I was interested in INF. So I went to the Reagan library and went into the archives and, and started going through every all the discussions in the White House about INF. And so they specifically built systems in the expectation that they would negotiate them away. And if you look at INF, the Russians gave up a lot more than we gave up. They gave up a lot more numbers, systems, capability, because they absolutely feared that we could strike Moscow in a few minutes and they couldn't stop it. And the angles that that Pershing would come in and it, it just, and Glickham just created serious problems. So they negotiated away, but now 
you know, I've, I'm pretty familiar with the DCA mission in Europe and it's not, I would not call it a feasible threat. Um, I, it could potentially be one, but there's a lot that has to be done to make it so. So I would say the Russians are not all that fearful and we're, we don't really have an equivalent set of capabilities today that could achieve the same deterrent effect that Pershing and Glickham did, you know, up until they were negotiated away in the INF treaty. And so I wonder how much we have, we, the United States have been an enabler of Vladimir Putin as he's built these, you know, these battlefield weapons, these, he's built everything from micro nukes to ultra low nukes to low yield. To, he's, and you know, the variety of systems is amazing. And we've essentially, the best we've done is we've said, Hey, we want you to throw those in to new start negotiations. And that that's about it. So, I mean, have we been enabling both the Russians and then the Chinese are always watching? and enable them to build similar capabilities? Um, I guess I'm not sure I would use the term enable. Um, I, I would have to think about that a little bit, but I'm, I'm very similar in thought. And that is uh, um, the Russians, the Soviets and now the Russians, uh, it, for, for years and years, they have, once they sort of uh, got their footing when the Cold War ended, uh, they have grown in capability and threat. There's a reason why uh, countries have been approaching NATO membership. Um, and that is the because of the rising threat of Russia uh, right in their territory. And as, as you mentioned, all of these suite of capabilities, uh, they th threatened the Baltics. They went into Georgia. They went into Crimea. These are these are very tangible threats. Plus the the, the buildup of very capable uh, uh, nuclear forces across the board. These are things that are very tangible threats. And so I I don't uh, I I just don't buy into the argument that um, that it's uh, somehow the U.S. and the West and NATO's fault for NATO expansion and and what uh, the Russians are doing is is the fault is our fault. I don't buy into that argument. Uh, this is an adversarial, an adversary who is acting adversarial, and he's doing exactly what we would expect him to do. Um, he, he, it, their value system is not like our own. Their, their decision making, their, uh, their, uh, the behavior that is acceptable to them is not uh, like our own. And they, and this kind of threat has to be acknowledged and it has to be challenged. Uh, and deterrence always involves risk. And we have to take those kinds of capabilities uh, and bring them to bear to to discount the risk to ourselves and to speak the language of our opponent. So circling back, um, uh, I, I, I think that that kind of a, a strategy uh, is something that would be Reagan-esque, as you say, but it's something that is absent. It, it, it needs to be brought to bear both in the Pacific and in Europe, uh, as you say, the 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 asymmetry of non-strategic forces is hundreds to a couple of thousand. Um, and this is right in that theater. And, and as you say, DCA, uh, it, it is going to get modernized. Uh, and that's true, but it still has a lot of limitations. 
um, whereas the, the Russians have a lot of different options at their disposal. So again, even when it comes to the non-strategic forces like we did uh, years ago uh, before INF, uh, that would be very Kanian to have a lot of different capabilities, a lot of different options at your disposal. Uh, that's something that I think needs to be brought to bear in Europe and in the Pacific. Well said. Unfortunately, we are out of time. And we didn't even talk. I wanted to talk about the nuclear posture review, and I had a whole list of things to talk about. But we've we've run through our time without even getting to the best parts. So I guess what that means is we'll have to you'll have to come back again in the future and, and we'll have some further discussions on these big topics. So I want to thank that. I want to thank Jonathan Trexel. Uh, Dr. Trexel is on the faculty at Missouri State University, where he teaches deterrence theory to graduate students. So thanks for joining us. It was a great talk, and uh, we'll see you on another show. Thank you, Adam. Great talk. Thank you. Well, we just had a great talk with Jonathan Trexel. He's uh, a guy who spent 40 years thinking about the Soviets, the Russians, and now the Chinese. And we were able to talk about the this idea of tripolarity. And he made a few points that, that were ones I had to go, okay, I like that. I hadn't thought of that, but I like that. So I, I always enjoyed talking to Jonathan. He and I have been friends a while, and we occasionally have lunch, and he'll throw out ideas, and we'll go back and forth. So I really enjoyed that back-and-forth discussion and some of some of the 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 always courteous pushback that Jonathan has. So I hope you enjoyed the show and uh, we'll see you on the next episode. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington. And this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.